Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Shivan Joshi, adjunct clinical professor of medicine at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine in New York City, and full-time nephrologist at the Orlando Veteran Affairs Medical Center in Florida. It's a fabulous facility that I've had the privilege of visiting. He's also associate professor of internal medicine at the University of Central Florida. In this episode, Shivam and I will be discussing the benefits of plant-based diets for patients with kidney disease, as well as some other topics. Shivam Joshi received his primary degree from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and his medical degree from the University of Miami in Florida before going on to complete his residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami and a nephrology fellowship at the University Hospital in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. He has a particular interest in plant-based diets in kidney disease, as I mentioned, and he's written numerous scientific articles on the topic. He also speaks frequently on this subject and is the youngest nephrologist to receive the highest award in renal nutrition, the National Kidney Foundation's Joel D. Coppola Award. When Shivam isn't practicing medicine or teaching, he's very outdoorsy, favors sports like biking and swimming. He's also a keen reader and loves our feathered friends, particularly cockatiels. It's a real honor to have Shivam here with us today, and I look forward to hearing more about the amazing work he's done throughout his distinguished career thus far, and doubtless much more to follow. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shivam Joshi. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for getting up early. So Shivam, you you qualified as a doctor in 2012, and you've since worked in hospitals across uh, the USA from Pennsylvania, up and down the USA, I should say, from Pennsylvania to your current home in Florida. Tell us about your inspiration to follow nephrology as a career and how you chose where to work. I really just loved nephrology. I loved the kidneys. They were this uh, mysterious organ. I always loved learning about them. And that, that interest has led me down this career. It started in medical school with an interest in the kidneys and has just continued a decade later. And I decided to return back to the state of Florida because uh, we have family close by and family is important. Absolutely. So let's dig into your work. You've published an impressive number of articles on topics as varied as the utility of unrefined carbohydrates in patients with diabetes The ketogenic diet to counter obesity, of course, has been a lot said about that, and the risk of developing kidney stones with antibiotics. Tell us about your focus on diet and its impact on disease states, and maybe give us some highlights from your publications or dig into any of the things I've mentioned. Yeah, diet is really important. The the old saying is that you are what you eat, and that is so true. And a lot of what I do research in what I write about, what I speak about is how diet affects our health. And uh, when you look at health in this country, um, or health care, which is really sick care, a lot of the diseases that we have, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, high cholesterol, all stem from a poor diet. Uh, we in America love all the unhealthy things that a human could possibly consume, which unfortunately leads to health problems over years and decades, and then patients come to see me, and they uh, many times have kidney disease, and all of this can be prevented in many cases 
by eating a healthier diet, exercising more, smoking less, all these things that go together with eating a healthy diet. And in cases where prevention is, uh, we're past that point, certainly be treated and the complications of uh, chronic kidney disease can be ameliorated uh, or prevented by, uh, by eating a healthy diet and having a healthy lifestyle. So d- dig into some of the things I've mentioned. So first of all, unrefined carbohydrates in patients with di- diabetes. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, with the advent of the low-carb diet and then the recent ketogenic diet, patients and practitioners and the health community have become afraid of carbohydrates, and for good reason. We are eating a lot of carbohydrates. A lot of those carbohydrates are refined, meaning that they are processed uh, grains. They're your uh, white flour, uh, your white rice, for example, a lot of added sugars, baked goods, uh, uh, just carbohydrates that are not healthy. So to, to make it very simple, it's the difference between apple pie and an apple. An apple is very healthy, obviously, and an uh, apple pie, not so much, but people lump them both together because they're both carbohydrates, and then they avoid both. And it's like tossing the baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to do that. And certainly in diabetes, the unrefined, unprocessed, whole, healthy carbohydrates, like a, an apple or a, a whole grain or whole wheat, uh, these things are healthy and have an important role in the uh, treatment of diabetes. Uh, and should be consumed. And you mentioned a ketogenic diet. What, what's the latest and greatest on that? Good for you, bad for you, good way to lose weight, healthy, not healthy? The, the consensus is that the ketogenic diet is a good way to lose weight in the short term. The weight you're going to be losing is largely water weight in the initial period. However, over the long term, it is hard to maintain. It is hard to adhere to the diet. And the diet does come with some risk of uh, complications, including a rise in cholesterol, uh, kidney stones, and things like that. If the ketogenic diet is a diet that works for you and you want to be on it or you're seriously considered going on it, the best way to do the ketogenic diet is to do a plant-based version where you're getting your fats from healthier plant-based sources. Uh, Some of the side effects of the traditional animal-based ketogenic diet that you might see on TV can be avoided by eating plant fats instead of animal fats. Such as what, like like avocados or, or what? Well, yeah, avocados, walnuts, olive oil, things like that. A lot of a lot of nuts to get your fat. Right. Uh, but the diet can can help some people lose weight. But for most people, the diet is just too restrictive uh, to adhere to for the long term. And when you look at studies, randomized controlled studies, study after study. The most important thing for weight loss is the caloric restriction. So there are perhaps easier ways to lose weight than the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet often lands at the bottom of the U.S. News and World Report's uh, diet rankings every year. And at the top, you're going to get the DASH diet, Mediterranean diet, flexitarian diet, things like that, because those diets just happen to be easier to restrict calories compared to the ketogenic diet. Yeah, I have to say I have a a real aversion to uh, the promulgation of pseudoscience. And in fact, it always struck me that there are so many diet books out there that probably the best use of them would be to carry them around in bags and use them as weights for exercise. I mean, some of them, the one that gets me, and hopefully you're going to educate me here, is the, the paleo diet, eat like a caveman. Well, cavemen did a lot of things that 
You know, if you said live like a caveman, oh yeah, I'm going to wear animal skins, live in a cave and beat people over the head with a club. That wouldn't be deemed very, you know, suitable behavior. What's your feeling about the promulgation of fad diets? It's dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, it's dangerous. And I think it reflects a desperation on society that uh, society has been subjected to this uh, obesogenic environment. And then people, unfortunately, are becoming obese and developing these health problems, and they're desperate for a way to turn this around. Unfortunately, it's hard to do that if you're a physician, a primary care physician with 15 minutes or less to see a patient. And a lot of patients don't get coverage to see a dietitian. at least in the U.S. You have to have certain qualifying conditions and not everyone can go and the amount of hours or time you get with a dietitian is limited. So people are desperate. What they turn to is old Google and they Google how to do this or they go online to a bookstore and uh, try to get this information because they can't get it anywhere else. And they uh, fall victim yet again to people peddling uh, pseudoscience, like you said, and it's really unfortunate. But this podcast and uh, the works of others, hopefully, will will turn that around. And then to your point on the paleo diet, that was my initial interest. The paleo diet was all the rage. Back when I was in med school in Miami, people were talking about paleo and South Beach. And the paleo diet is is really fascinating. One of the, you know, there's I could talk probably for an hour about the paleo diet. But the interesting part is is the the female critique of the paleo diet. Uh, and when you go into the literature written by a female anthropologist. They say that women here have just been left out of human history. And it's really important because the paleo diet people conceive of as men hunting and then we ate uh, meat and this uh, meat was uh, grass fed and free range and all these things. But actually, when you look at hunter gatherer societies, they really are gatherer hunter societies. And women did a lot of the gathering and they were gathering a lot of these plant foods. And that has largely been written out of the context of the popular paleo diet and even a lot of historical considerations uh, in the scientific literature of the paleo diet. And it's really interesting to read these female considerations because that's probably what happened in the past. Interesting. So you've co-authored a forthcoming article entitled, in, in I don't know if it's come out yet, actually, Individualize, but do not universally restrict dietary potassium. Can you talk a little bit about your research for this paper and how you describe the new renal diet, which you are a proponent of? Yeah, so I, I've had the honor of being part of the uh, new renal diet and helping introduce that. But uh, to answer your first point about potassium, this paper was in response to a pro-con pair of papers uh, in a journal, uh, whether to continue restricting potassium as we do for patients who have kidney disease in the form of the traditional renal diet or to liberalize or unrestrict the amount of potassium being consumed in these renal diets. And both papers were very good. I agreed, of course, with the liberalization side of the paper that counseled people to eat their uh, healthy foods that contain potassium, like fruits and vegetables. But the restriction paper was actually done very well, and I didn't want folks to take away that uh, we should continue restricting. So we wrote in a response, which was accepted, and as uh, I believe available online at this point, but in that paper, even though it was a small paper, it uh, cited some of her previous work. And we had uh, previously written a larger paper discussing all the major points about uh, potassium and kidney disease. So historically, as I mentioned earlier, the traditional renal diet, quote unquote, emphasized the restriction of some of the healthiest foods on the planet. These foods contain potassium, 
But what we've since learned is that that potassium does not necessarily translate into a rise in blood potassium levels, even in patients on dialysis, which is remarkable. So because of this realization, there's been a, a few papers coming out, trickling out. We assembled all this information together and kind of created a one paper that has all this information uh, for clinicians to help advance a new renal diet. So basically, we're telling people you can eat bananas, you can eat apples, you can have salads while on dialysis. And when you talk to patients about this, it's it's like you're telling them something that they not never thought they would never hear before. All patients have some plant food that they've really enjoyed. And uh, it's great to, to see their reaction when they can go back to it. And, and we've been trying to share that paper as far and wide as possible. So that leads me on to my next question. As we've discussed, you focus on patients with kidney disease benefiting from a plant-based diet. Can you expand on what that looks like? What's in that diet? What benefits will people have? Is it is it longevity? Is it freedom from symptoms? Less uh, medical interventions required? Can it slow the progression of the disease? Talk to us about that. Yeah. So as so I stated earlier, I have I've had the privilege and honor of working with Dr. Cam Kalantarzade at uh, at UCLA on crafting the new renal diet, which we have termed PLADO diet, P-L-A-D-O in capital letters, and that stands for plant, P-L-A, dominant, D-O, diet. Uh, and this uh, represents that 50% of the protein coming from the new renal diet, the PLADO diet, comes from plant sources. It doesn't have to be exclusively plant-based, but at least most of the protein coming actually comes from plants because of the large amount of benefits that come from plants which people may be familiar from the general uh, health benefits, but for specifically for kidneys, there's a lot of benefits. For example, in kidney disease, you have trouble excreting acid. You have trouble excreting phosphorus. When you eat plant foods, phosphorus is less absorbed. You're getting more base alkali. People think of alkaline water, but there's alkaline foods like fruits and vegetables. These foods are less taxing to the kidneys. We think animal protein causes more glomerular hyperfiltration than plant protein, believe it or not. And then uh, the rest of it is the, the usual stuff, you know, restricting sodium and uh, making sure you're not eating calorically in excess. And uh, it's just basically giving people back all these healthy foods on the planet, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, lentils. People were avoiding these foods because of the potassium in fruits and vegetables, the phosphorus and legumes uh, like beans. Uh, and what people were eating instead was a ham and cheese sandwich on uh, white bread, which is certainly not healthy by any means. It's fiber deficient, it contains saturated fat, it has processed meat, but this is a true statement. I had a one patient in clinic uh, years ago who literally brought this in front of me and ate it in front of me. And uh, you know, it's since situations like that that inspire uh, me at least to uh, continue doing what I do. It's almost like they're, <laughs> they're flaunting it in front of you. I'm not going to mention the university hospital, very prominent university hospital, where the dean, uh, who was a very good man, tried to influence what food was being sold in the hospital cafeteria, where doctors, nurses, and patients would go and get food during the day. And he tried to put in a traffic light system, red, green, and, and amber. And he was... He was vilified and the unions made it very, very plain that no one was going to be interfering with their French fries and hamburgers and hot dogs and <laughs> ham and cheese on white bread. So it, it's tough changing beliefs. 
So this this next topic is very dear to me. I trained in the UK, but spent and and you know went medical school and did my surgical training in the UK, and then I I was recruited to the United States and worked there for many years, and I I stay in close touch with my friends from medical school, many of whom went into general practice. A few years back, you co-authored a paper entitled U.S. Residency Competitiveness, Future Salary, and Burnout in Primary Care versus Specialty Fields. And burnout such a huge issue in the medical profession and becoming more so, certainly since COVID. What did you encounter in this study and what were the findings? And I'm particularly interested in whether burnout differs for practitioners between different medical fields. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh, burnout is a big issue, uh, definitely here in the States and probably across the pond over where you are. And COVID has made that worse. And I think it's it continues to get worse with the increasing regulatory pressure and demands uh, from an EMR and uh, all the expectations that uh, physicians are supposed to meet without any sort of uh, decrease in time to do these things. And I had wrote this paper almost a decade ago, so I actually had to look this up this morning to make sure I, I remembered what I had written. Uh, we had done this in residency, and uh, this paper came across, the original paper was published in JAMA, and the paper was an update. So uh, this author, Mark Ebel, E-B-E-L-L, he had published an original paper in, I believe, in 1988 or 1989, looking at U.S. residency competitiveness versus salary. And the original paper in the 80s had showed that uh, there was a very strong correlation between how competitive a residency was, uh, like an orthopedic residency and salary, future salary earnings, which makes sense. Uh, it's not surprising that humans, as humans, we are uh, drawn to higher paying specialties. That's no surprise to anyone. But the interesting part was that he had published an update uh, maybe 15 years later showing that the correlation uh, coefficient, the R value, had decreased by some amount. And he had theorized that uh, it could have been burnout and some of these things related to the EMR and whatnot. And, uh, but he had not studied that. So uh, I had found, a, I believe, a medical student at the time who did a great job. And we had found data on burnout. And uh, we correlated that with specialties looking at their uh, uh, competitiveness and the future earnings. And we found that there was a correlation between all these factors of uh, burnout. And we suggested that the reason that salary perhaps does not matter as much is because people are considering these other aspects to their life because money isn't everything. Um, so is happiness, how much time you have. And we looked at that. So the, the survey that we found, I believe it was from Medscape, had studied this. And we found correlations of uh, the uh, how uh, burned out someone was, the presence of bias towards patients, which is a sign of burnout, happiness at work, happiness outside of work, hours worked per week, and the sum of happiness at and outside of work all had uh, small correlations, which in some probably influenced decisions of people as they choose a specialty, which we thought was interesting. And so did the editors at JAMA Internal Medicine, and then it got accepted and has been published. Yeah, I recently took part, it's fascinating, I, I recently took part in a, in a webinar together with a GP friend and colleague of mine from med school, a pediatric anesthesiologist who has spent a lot of time in war zones in Syria rebuilding hospitals, an amazing woman named Dr. Rola Halam, and a friend of mine, Dove Barron, who, who speaks on leadership and teams 
And he had done a very, very telling little video blog a few years back. And the points that Roller and Dove made about not only the impact of burnout, that it can affect everyone, but our responsibility as physicians to look for it in ourselves, for the warning signs in ourselves and in our, our, our loved ones and our colleagues and, you know, do things to try and head it off. And, sh- you know, we're very good at caring for other people. We need to be better at caring for ourselves or we can't care for anyone. Right, right. I, I, I completely agree with that. And we as physicians are the worst patients. So that's, a, that's another saying, and I really believe that. Uh, we're just so wrapped up into our work, and many of us by nature are type A or perfectionists or workaholics, but that does take a, an unseen toll year after year, you know, uh, day after day, and that it leads to a high rate of not only suicide, but people unfortunately leaving the profession. There's whole organizations devoted to uh, physicians finding an alternate career path, which is unfortunate. On many levels, obviously, suicide is terrible. Uh, they leave; uh, it affects so many people that they leave behind. And then uh, to also see so many physicians leaving the profession uh, also leaves us with uh, gaps in care in rural areas and some specialties, and uh, that affects uh, health and uh, the lives of other people. Very much so. So, anyone listening in who thinks that this may be them, you know, senses of sadness, uh, loss of control. Uh, dissatisfaction, mood swings, you know, you're, you're not immune. Um, we don't get a free pass being healthcare professionals and look for it in other people and be kind and caring. Um, I'd like to change topic a little bit now and ask you to range free about the most recent breakthroughs in your specialties and also some of the major challenges that you face. And you've recently taken up a new post at the Veterans Administration uh, hospital. What kind of challenges does the VA system face generally and in your specialty? Yes, yeah, so I, I think the challenges faced by the VA are similar across all hospitals. Uh, just uh, getting people access to care in a timely manner um, at the right diagnosis. I think there's just an under-recognition of chronic kidney disease and uh, under-recognition of the how important it is to treat it at an early on. And uh, to check for things like albuminuria, or pro- which is protein in the urine, because, if, for example, in diabetics, that's one of the first signs of diabetic kidney disease uh, that we can pick up, at least, and that's uh, the canary in the coal mine to uh, do something about it before it progresses to end-stage kidney, kidney disease and uh, leads to dialysis. But I think overall, as we look at a healthcare system, uh, we... You know, and I think this probably contributes to uh, burnout is that for a lot of physicians, especially those who are lifestyle minded, is that constantly prescribing patients medications that they don't want to take or cannot afford does not is not very fulfilling. And not many physicians go into medicine to be able to just prescribe medications. For me, I find a lot of reward in counseling patients about their diet and offering them hope. And uh, I've kind of established myself as this type of person and patients have uh, traveled across the country to come see me. Uh, and in some cases, I'm not able to help, but in some cases, I'm able to keep people off dialysis for a year or two um, with the right dietary and lifestyle counseling and uh, with the right motivation on the patient's part. Uh, but that's that's very fulfilling. And the, it's hard for people to do on a larger scale because we're not getting the appropriate reimbursement. Uh, preventing disease is not really cool or sexy, but the latest drug or, you know, for example, 
GLP-1s, which I love, get a lot of attention because that's cool and innovative. Uh, but telling people to eat an apple or a banana is not that all that exciting. Yeah. So you, you won, I mentioned in my introduction, you won the National Kidney Foundation's Joel D. Coppola Award and the youngest physician to have received it. Congratulations. I'd like you to wax lyrical and put humility aside. You're clearly a very accomplished fella. Tell us about that award. Thank you for the kind words. That, that award uh, came from the support of dietitians. I've been a big fan of dietitians and I and some of my early requests at speaking were to uh, dietetic communities, conferences largely attended by dietitians uh, who saw the value uh, of what I was saying. And it's still interesting that even to this day, a lot of kidney doctors uh, do not see much value in what I have to say, and they regard it as the work of dietitians. Uh, so to me, I was trying to get the attention of uh, the physicians, but I had uh, gotten the attention of dietitians and did not uh, fully appreciate that until I was uh, told that I was winning this award. Uh, this award recognizes the achievements of those who've done a lot of work in the renal nutrition space. And at that time, my work was largely focused on including plant-based foods uh, for patients with kidney disease, uh, those who were vegetarian, vegan, flexitarian, uh, eating Mediterranean DASH diets. These diets were taboo until I started uh, speaking about this and commenting and this is, uh, I would like to think, spurred a uh, change in the research and how we look at these types of foods and uh, has continued to grow. I continue to speak for dietitians, and my latest area of research is on uh, the potassium content of these foods and how potassium that we, that we eat does not really affect uh, the blood potassium. Uh, by the way, you mentioned the term flexitarianism, and um, I had to look it up. <laughs> just for the benefit of other people. I'm, I'm very happy to admit when I'm stupid. Um, tell us about flexitarianism. Yes, there's a lot of concepts for this, and a lot of it falls under the umbrella of being plant-based. So people often equate being plant-based as being vegan, but that's not necessarily true. Anyone can be plant-based if they make a conscientious decision to reduce the amount of animal protein that they're consuming and increase the amount of plant protein. And there's a lot of ways to do this. Uh, flexitarian is one of them where you're mostly eating plant protein, but uh, on certain occasions you might be flexible and eat animal protein, uh, like at a gathering or an event or out to dinner with colleagues or friends. But uh, some people do plant-based before 5 p.m. Some people are uh, lacto-vegetarian where they're vegetarian but eat dairy, or some are ovo-vegetarian but eat eggs and so forth. And you have lacto-ovo-pesco vegetarians that eat eggs, dairy, and fish. Uh, so there's a lot of variations to it. It's just whatever works for you. But uh, the underpinnings are that uh, eating these foods that are high in fiber, have a lot of vitamins and nutrients and minerals, antioxidants. Uh, as long as you're eating this, whatever the label is, whatever definition you fall under, that constitutes the base of your diet, unprocessed, healthy plant foods. Uh, then you're doing one of the biggest things you can for your own health. Hmm. Okay, thank you for that. So no surprising that you're an educator as well, because you've certainly educated me today, and you lectured at, at NYU, um, and so on and so forth. Tell us about what you think is the most important lesson that you can impart to, well, certainly aspiring nephrologists, but also to anyone in medicine, um, would you agree that being a teacher teaches you to learn more? I always said the reason that I love doing teaching rounds is it forces me 
to make sure that I know at least a little bit more than the people around the bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I joke around that you have to know something before you can teach it. Um, so uh, I, I do love the teaching, uh, especially on things that I already know, but on things that I don't know as well. Um, I, it forces me to learn. For example, I've recently been dabbling in the climate change and nephrology space. And I know a little bit, but that because I'm not a uh, established expert on it, it forces me to learn and I enjoy learning about it and learning how all of these things that we do uh, interconnect. But to your original point, I think for people that are going into medicine or already in medicine, I think there's an opportunity to improve the status quo in so many ways. And uh, the next generation faces a lot of faces the problems of the previous generation and even more problems, including climate change. And it's all the more important that we're not uh, just passive participants in history, but active, active change makers, active problem solvers. Uh, for many of these problems, the cost of healthcare is skyrocketing or climate change is worsening. Uh, people are getting uh, sicker and sicker from preventable diseases and more people at that. Uh, so there's opportunities for advocacy, change, research, education to undo some of this. So I have to ask, because you mentioned it, climate change and in the nephrology world, I, I had the great pleasure of interviewing a physician, a radiologist, who one of his fo areas of focus was reducing electricity consumption in the hospital by turning stuff off when it wasn't being used. What, what can you do for the climate in your specialty? Yeah, I, I was doing that too in my previous institution. I was at a large public hospital and I saw that people were leaving the lights on uh, uh, at 5 p.m. on Friday and they were left on all weekend until Monday, 8 a.m. And I felt that if we did this facility wide, we could generate the carbon savings equivalent to a few homes of across uh, over the course of a year or more. And every little bit helps. And in the nephrology space, I think the biggest thing uh, is the resource use with patients on dialysis. It uses an incredible amount of electricity. In even the life cycle of some of these things it requires a lot of carbon to make the dialysate to get some of these medications. And then also, of course, to water, the amount of water that's used people don't realize this is that the dialysate is uh, is flowing at 600 mLs per minute over uh, or more over the course of three to four hours. But uh, a lot of the water, that's only a small fraction of water. It goes through a filtration process and a large percentage of water is rejected through the filters uh, due to mineral hardness, uh, contaminants, things like that. So a large amount of water is being used uh, on a full order of magnitude than was used in the treatment or more. And this, so this is, creates an opportunity for us to perhaps reduce uh, the effects on climate change by preventing, emphasizing the prevention of progression to uh, end-stage kidney disease. And certainly that generates cost savings because at least here in the United States, one patient on dialysis is equivalent to eighty or $90,000 per year, which is an enormous cost for this treatment. Wow. So my final question for you, Shivam, is if a, a genie, popped up in, well, you are in the magic kingdom or close to the magic kingdom anyway. If you came across a genie who granted you three wishes in the field of healthcare or in the field of nephrology, what would those wishes be? I think, I think I, I, I mean, I would wish that no one had to go through dialysis. I think it's just a very horrible experience. My own grandfather was on it and uh, to see him on it uh, was just terrible and heartbreaking. And obviously anyone that's on dialysis doesn't have much 
much time left uh, as they're really slowly dying than slowly living. But I would ask for more uh, reimbursement for prevention, more recognition for the efforts towards prevention, more funding towards research and policies that favor preventing kidney disease, dietary lifestyle changes, all the support that goes to that. If we had as much support for preventing kidney disease as we do for treating kidney disease, then I think a lot less people would be progressing to end-stage kidney disease on dialysis. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have the society that's set up like this that favors uh, the investment of uh, dialysis companies and under-resourced and disadvantaged communities, but not for dietitians or IMCAs or fitness centers. Yeah, um, you said it. We've got a disease care system. I'm, I'm glad to see that in, in the country of my birth that I've now moved back to, that there is a focus. And, you know, we have this chef over here, Jamie Oliver, who did this whole thing about improving food in schools, they had him go to the States and they made a TV series. And of course they, you know, ramped it up for the TV and made it as contentious as possible. And they put him into West Virginia and God, it was tragic. It was tragic seeing the quality of food. Kids were not only eating in school, but that setting their expectation for what their life diet should be. We need to change it. We need to change it. And I think it needs people like you to do that. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank you for taking uh, an hour or so out of your, your day, Shivam. It's a fascinating discussion, and I've certainly learned a lot. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. No problem. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure of mine to speak with you, and I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, uh, and I'm happy to be back anytime, and uh, you're welcome to come visit the Orlando VA again. <laughs> well, given that it's still a bit chilly over here, I, I would certainly like to be in Florida. <laughs> so, folks, you can learn more about Dr. Joshi in the show notes and follow him on various social media where he's active on Twitter and Instagram at JoshiMD, I believe, and on his website, which is www.afternoonrounds.com, afternoonrounds.com. Folks, please join us next week for another episode of the EMJ podcast, and check out the archives. They're quite extensive. But until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening. Remember, please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>